The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until the Son of Man, man had risen from the dead. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. Today we are entering the beginning of the story of Holy Week, which is why this, this service might feel a little bit different than usual, but I don't know about you. I love it when things change, so it's really exciting. Kids who are with us, if, if you'd like to follow along with the children's bulletin that Pastor Tammy made, they are on a table outside uh, the old library. So there's some children's bulletins, crayons, colored pencils. So today's story, the transfiguration, is a definitive mountaintop experience. I woke up yesterday morning in the Rockies, and so, like, I am all about mountaintop experiences right now. (laughs) You know, mountaintop experiences, when we talk about them, we usually talk about them as something that changes us. A mountaintop experience puts us face-to-face with the things that really matter in life. Beauty, our own mortality, God. Mountaintop experiences occur throughout the biblical narrative. When God provides a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead of his son, that was a mountaintop experience in the book of Genesis. When Moses receives God's covenant, mountaintop experience, and then later, even in the New Testament Gospels, Jesus gives the disciples the Great Commission, his last words, before he ascends into the heavenly realm, and that also happened on a mountain. I'm guessing most of us have had mountaintop experiences as well. They might be more or less dramatic, but I, I bet you can think of something high in your life. I, I remember one summer in college visiting a friend at the camp where he worked in South Dakota, hiking the Black Hills. That's what this is a photo of. Hiking the Black Hills by myself one afternoon. And I remember sitting for quite a long time at an overlook with the, the gray rocks and these yellow flowers And I had my Bible with me, and and I was memorizing and praying Psalm 24, which I still remember what I learned that day. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And there is really nothing like praying that psalm with a view like this. 
It was a mountaintop experience. Not the most dramatic, but still. Mountaintop experiences lift the veil of the ordinary and open our eyes to the extraordinary. We might have questions like, who is God? Does God really love me more than I can imagine? Maybe a mountaintop experience happens literally on a mountain, or it's just simply an extraordinary day. Maybe your wedding or the birth of a child. There is no template for mountaintop experiences, but we do know that they're real, and in them, God is at work changing us. So our story for today. Here's Jesus and his inner group of three disciples, including Peter, who we have been studying this Lenten season. I don't know about you, but as, as we've really dived into these texts, I've given thanks for Peter's example. I mean, he is so relatable, you know what I mean? I, I'm really glad that it was not a perfect person who was Jesus' closest disciple. I'm thankful that we can watch Peter grow through his mistakes say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and and sometimes really be generally confused about what's going on. I I relate to that. What grace Christ shows to him in their interactions. And two, we can remember what grace Christ shows to us when we make mistakes as well. So here they are up on the mountain. We don't know what mountain it was, actually. Tradition says Mount Tabor. One commentator I read made a two-page argument for Mount Marin. Another said it was Mount Hermon. We don't know. I do know it wasn't the Black Hills. So here they are on a mountain, and this happens. Jesus was transfigured before them. I want you to note grammatically, I'm going to get nerdy here for a minute. This is a passive verb. Jesus did not transfigure himself. That would have been active. Jesus was transfigured. And and when we see this in scripture, this is called divine passive. In other words, God did it. God, through the Holy Spirit, transfigures Jesus. And the disciples can see for the first time the reality of who Jesus is, he is bright. His clothes are radiantly white with Mark's detail. And, and we can remember that Mark's gospel comes from a firsthand account of Peter. Jesus' clothes are whiter than anyone could bleach them. Luke describes Jesus' clothes as brighter than a flash of lightning. Jesus is bright white, dazzling white, his garments, he, impossibly white. They have to squint. They have to look away. Their pupils get as small as they possibly can, and, and still it's too bright. And they are seeing Jesus as he really is, fully human, and from the indication of the dazzling brightness, fully, fully divine. They are seeing what their faith ancestors have longed to see. They are seeing God in all his glory. Many years before this mountain incident, Moses wanted to see God's glory. He asked him, can I see your glory? And and God answered, well, kind of. That's my translation. I mean, God allows his goodness, his self, to pass in front of Moses, but he does not permit Moses to see his face because God says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then the prophet Elijah, Elijah too experiences God on a mountain. God says to him, 
Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And the Lord passes by in this gentle whisper. And we read, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the Lord speaks to him there. But Elijah, by pulling the cloak over his face, he's protecting himself from seeing God's glory. Because God's glory is too much for us mortals. It will, it will kill us. But this time, this time, Peter and James and John witnessed the glory of God. And here it is, Moses and Elijah on the mountain once more, speaking with God who is incarnate in Christ. They are looking at him face to face. They're communicating with him. And I have so many questions about this story that are unanswered. I've always wondered how the disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. Have you wondered that? How do they know? We don't know how they knew. I mean, there weren't photos. There wasn't facial recognition software. I don't think they were wearing name tags. But somehow they knew. Because Peter suddenly blurts out, Teacher! That's what rabbi means. It's like a kid, right? Teacher! Teacher! Here he is, teacher to the one in the gleaming, bright, white clothes. I I think, like, Peter, you might have, could have chosen a more respectful term at this point. Um, Teacher, it's it's good to be here. Let's let's make three tabernacles, three little huts, one for you and, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then the Bible tells us that Peter said this because he was afraid. I bet he was afraid. I bet Peter was full of feelings at this point. I mean, fear, yes, at the glory of Jesus that he can't even look at. The appearance of these two long-gone heroes of the faith. Maybe Peter has this sudden surge of hope in the work of God. Because when when Moses appeared in Scripture, the the word of God comes down. And when Moses appears in in Scripture, God rescues his people from slavery to the Egyptians. And when Elijah appears, God has the spiritual victory over idolatry. When these guys appear, that means something is going to happen and it's going to be big. And then there's this glory and this terror and the brightness and and the squinting. And it's just too much to handle. It's a sensory overload. What does it mean? The unknowing is too much. It's overwhelming. But... But maybe, Peter thinks, maybe this is it. This is the moment we have been waiting for. This is peak mountaintop experience. We have reached the summit. And Peter's trying to all capture the moment. He's trying to box it up for later. Hey, hey, Jesus, this is awesome. Everybody, let's capture this moment. We're going to take a selfie, and then I'll get busy being useful in the face of this glory. Because we better figure out how to stay up on this mountain before the feeling goes away. Let's camp here and stay. I can build something. Teacher, I can't do much. I'm just a fisherman, but I can build a hut. I I think Peter really knows how to ruin the moment. Like interrupting the glory with his monologuing and planning how to make it last. He thinks that this event is peak mountaintop experience. But you know what, Peter? It is just a glimpse of what there is to come. And I would also add, what is yet still to come? Maybe this is why Jesus tells them not to tell anyone on the way down the mountain. He knows that Peter would get it wrong. 
Peter doesn't understand it yet. This glory still needs time to bake. It needs time to be fulfilled. Peter didn't understand it. And actually, this glory isn't going to make much sense until Jesus rises from the dead. It's sort of like if you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you think that red blotchy piece goes into the sunset, but suddenly, right at the end, you realize it's just a weird tree shadow. You have to interpret the little piece from the vision of the whole. And though at this moment... Peter isn't interpreting the piece correctly. He thinks it's the sunset. It's not. We're given, we, through the text, are given advantage of Peter's hindsight. We can see more of the story than he could in that moment. And even though we have not witnessed Jesus' transfiguration, we can learn from Peter here. Because I think we kind of do what Peter does. I think often we think we're on peak mountaintop, but really it's a false summit. You know what I mean? Maybe you've looked back at a time in your life and been like, man, I wish I could go back to there. That time I felt so close to God. That honeymoon with Jesus. That time when my spiritual life had that new car smell. I wish I could get back to that. When I was a kid, I went to Bible camp a lot. I don't think I'm the only one here. You know, a lot of us went to camp. I loved camp. And it wasn't just one camp one week every summer. One one summer, I went to three different camps for three different weeks. And I loved camp. I loved the engaging preaching. I loved the team games. I loved the Bible memory contest. I was good at the Bible memory, but bad at the team games. I loved being outside and the sunsets. I took a lot of really bad pictures of sunsets. For, for me, though, the worst part about camp was going home. And I, I have a great family. It wasn't the home. It was leaving camp, right? I'd go home fatigued with this big bag of dirty clothes and what I called that empty feeling. You know that feeling? The feeling you get after a mountaintop experience? I coined the phrase, that empty feeling. You may use that. It is helpful. That empty feeling is when the glory fades. That's when the trees block your view of the sunset because you live in a subdivision. That empty feeling is when no one plans games every day and you don't get to sing silly songs at dinner and you have to help with the dishes. That empty feeling because the Sunday morning preacher doesn't have a puppet. No one gives you high fives for no reason. You know, same old, same old, boring life. Now, as I look back on this now, I'm really thankful for the experiences I had at camp. But I realize that they were false summits. They were not bad. It was good. God was at work. But it was just the beginning of God inviting me deeper into the Christian life. I felt like I was on the top of the mountain. But really, I had just gone up somewhat, and the view had improved. And I'll tell you what, my true growth as a Christian has happened, not from mountaintop experiences or even false summits, but from suffering. When I look back at the jigsaw puzzle of my life, the most transformative moments are also the most painful. And I think if we're honest, this is true for all of us. 
Here's another example we can use to help us understand this idea. But we can think of falling in love or a wedding day as a mountaintop experience. You make all these beautiful promises and even more beautiful photographs and everyone is happy and you drive away in a fancy car with the sparklers still sparkling. But you know, sorry to break it to you if you don't, these feelings, this mountaintop of feeling in love, it doesn't last. I'm sorry, but this is true. I've been married for almost 23 years. I have a great marriage. I love my husband. But you know that fire, sometimes it smolders. So there's a scientist who writes about this and studies this. His name is Dr. Tai Tashiro. He researches feelings of love and relationships. And he says, sometimes people ask me, like, hey, why can't I stay in passionate love forever? Why can't the pounding heart and the butterflies endure forever? Wouldn't that be nice? And he says this. I have a really simple answer, which is, you would die. That's not a sustainable physiological state to be in. A pounding heart, that's another term for high blood pressure. And those butterflies in your stomach leave the trails of hormones that would eventually burn a hole in your stomach. This should be helpful to all of us, right? You're like, oh, oh, I'm understanding more about my life now. Being in love and those butterflies and that in your brain, it's unsustainable. You would die. And even though weddings can be great and they are important, the truth is that a wedding can be a false summit. Love is tested through suffering. It's, it's the worse. It's the poorer. It's the sickness part of our vows. We celebrate at a wedding. You know what? A few years ago, I honored my parents at their 50th wedding anniversary. And it was their faithfulness to one another in the ordinariness and the boringness and the mundaneness of the day to day to day to day. And so Peter is in this false summit, but he doesn't recognize it in the moment. It it is amazing. It is glorious. He's thinking, wow, it couldn't get any better than this. Jesus and two heroes of the faith, and he wants to stay. But for a human to be in the presence of God's glory for so long and to be afraid like they were with these mixed emotions of desire for God and fear of God, you know what? They aren't ready for that yet. To quote Dr. Tashiro, it is not a sustainable physiological state to be in. They can't stay on the mountain. It's a false summit. And I think Jesus knows this. He knows, too, that that long-lasting glory only comes after suffering. It is through suffering, not mountaintop experiences, that Jesus and us are led to the experience of glory. Because as they descend the mountain, Jesus offers ominous words about his own impending suffering that the Son of Man is going to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt. And so as we look to Peter today, to summarize some of the things I've said, this is what we can learn from Peter in the story of Jesus' transfiguration. So first of all, mountaintop experiences are great, they're good, But I invite you to meet them, whether once in the future or as you look back on your own 
past journey, meet your mountaintop experiences with quiet reflection. Do not ruin it by monologuing or trying to box it in or trying to return to it if it happened a long time ago. That is impossible. God was at work then. And accept it and receive it. Second, realize that most, I would say maybe even all on this side of eternity, Mountaintop experiences are false summits. They are good, but they are not our destination and our journey of discipleship. Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. It is slow. There are summits and there are valleys, but God is present with us in them all, even when it doesn't feel like it. It's really important. Even when it doesn't feel like it. And then finally, recognize God's work in your life through mountaintop experiences and in suffering. God can use our suffering to bring us to a place of complete emptiness and vulnerability that only he can lead us out of. And this is an appropriate way to begin Holy Week. In a moment, we'll skip forward in the gospel story to remember Jesus' procession into Jerusalem. This is a celebratory moment. It probably felt like another mountaintop experience to those who were there, but it is painted with wrong expectations. Those cheering want Jesus to overthrow Roman rule. They want Jesus to usher in the new kingdom and freedom for the Jews from political and government oppression. But Jesus has his sights set higher because the real summit has not yet been reached. In the real summit, Jesus won't just be liberating one ethnic minority, but all humanity from their enslavement to sin and death and the evil one. And that's what we're remembering this week. The way one man, one divinely glorious man-God, has another mountaintop experience. But this time, it's not the brightness of glory This time it's suffering. It is brutal and painful and dark and bloody and lonely. And this mountaintop experience is also God revealing himself to us, showing us his heart, his humility, his passion, his justice, and his love. And so this week, this holy week, let us set aside our own desire to go back to our favorite mountaintop experience, whatever it is. Let us follow Jesus in his suffering as he ascends another hill, this one called Golgotha. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we praise you for your glory. We praise you for your suffering. This week, may it be a model to us not only of who you are and what you have done in redemption for our sin, but also who you call us to be so that one day we may also be glorified. We pray in your name. Amen.